think uh, today we have, uh, I think, the fifth session of uh, reading and commentary of the Abbaqasirajude um, in the Book of Certainty. Uh, uh, Abdurrahman Adnan from Malaysia will uh, read the passage continuing from last week and to be followed by uh, commentary uh, by uh, Dr. Reza Shah Kazami and some discussion after that. Please, Abdul Rahman. All right, I'm reading from uh, page uh, six of the book. Yeah, from the, from the top of the page. After uh, he gave uh, Surah Al-Ikhlas, the first, verse of surah, uh, first two verses of Surah Al-Ikhlas, he continues, Lest in the weakness of human conception, the infinite riches contained in God should, as it were, overflow into duality, the supreme name is safeguarded between two affirmations of his unity. He, signifying the pure essence in itself, without any differentiation as regards the qualities. Then, to wipe away the stain of any idea of limitation or insufficiency that the human intelligence might conceive, the name of divinity is uttered again, and with it, the name of absolute plenitude, the eternally sufficient unto himself, Aswamad. The truth is one, yet its unity implies for the believer no fear of any loss, since the truth is also the infinitely good, Ar-Rahman, and the all-bountiful, Al-Kareem. That which is taken away by extinction is restored in eternity, according to the infinite measure of its real self. The different beings are extinguished in the truth as different colors that are reabsorbed into the principal whiteness of light. Yet, as it were, on the other side of the whiteness are the true colors, each incomparably more distinct in the eternal splendor of its reality, as revealed in the light of the whiteness that ever it was in its illusory self. And yet, at the same time, there is no duality, no otherness. That which is named the garden of the essence, inasmuch as it is the paradise of him, is named Firdaus, inasmuch as it is the paradise of God. The Prophet said, If you ask a boon of God, ask of him Firdaus, for it is the midmost paradise and the highest paradise, and from it flow forth the rivers of paradise. Here the beloved have attained to eternity after the extinction, which is the divine station, al-maqamul ilahi, the station of immutability, but lest their plurality should seem to imply a plurality in God, they are, when spoken of, as it were, separated from the divinity being named those who are brought nigh, al-muqarrabun. It is they who drink at kawthar, abundance, the supreme river whence flow all others, and of which the Prophet said, 
there are on its banks as many cups of silver as there are stars in the firmament. Whoso drinketh thereof shall never thirst. In Firdaus, the nigh drink also from a fountain which, like Kauthar, is perfumed with musk, and which is named Tasneem, exaltation. Yet the name Tasneem, in its expression of high reasonedness, is an understatement pregnant with significance, as is the name of the river in its expression of abundance. For Kauthar is no less than a flow of the infinite beatitude of the old of the all-holy, Al-Quddus. Nor is it otherwise with the name of those who drink their right in its expression of nearness, which must be measured in the light of the definition of the nearness of God. We are nearer to him, man, than his jugular vein. Quran, Surah 50, verse 16. To speak of the gardens and fountains of paradise, as also of its rivers, fruits, and consorts, is to speak the truth. Whereas to speak of such blessings in this world is only a manner of speaking. For the realities are in Firdaus, and what we see in this world are only the more remote shadows, are only the remote shadows of reality. The divinity immutable and indivisible is the truth besides which all other truths cease to exist. One such relative truth is that of the religious law, and it is said that this truth may be expressed in words, I and thou, whereas the truth of the path, that is, the direct way of return towards God, may be expressed, I am thou and thou art I. But the truth itself is, there is neither I nor thou, but only he. Right, thank you. Uh, <clears throat> would you like to just read the, the Arabic of that in the footnote as well? Al-Shari'atu ana wa anta Al-Tariqatu ana anta wa anta Ana anta wa ana wa anta ana. Al-Hakika la ana wa la anta huwa. Thank you. Yes, that's a good place to stop because we, we go back from there to the beginning of the top of page six about the weakness of human conception of the infinite riches contained in God, lest the weakness of human conception. Uh, should diminish the infinitude of God's oneness and therefore overflow into duality. Dr. Ling says that the supreme name Allah is, as it were, safeguarded, it's protected between two affirmations of his unity. Because uh, he said also uh, in uh, the book Symbol and Archetype that. When we try and conceive of the divine unity, the poverty of our mental conception actually produces a duality because it's our limited capacity to conceive of, of divine unity 
in combination with a, an intrinsic, one might say, congenital weakness in the human mind when it comes to juxtaposing unity and multiplicity. Whereas the heart can conceive of unity as being absolutely one with infinity and therefore with a multiplicity within God. When the mind conceives of unity, it becomes a kind of mathematical unity, a oneness that excludes all inner infinitude. So we're very good at conceiving of the oneness of the absolute, the absolute one, beside before which that the transcendent unity of absolute divinity extinguishes all alterity, all otherness, all multiplicity. We're quite good. Our reason can do that. We can understand that there can only be one absolute, one source, one this, one that. But what we're not so good at doing, and this is where the Sufis talk about the absolute importance of grasping God through contraries, through an apparent contradiction. When they asked Bayezid al-Bistani, how is it that you came to know God? He said, I came to know him through contradiction, tawad. How two apparent contraries can come together in this paradox of unity. And then he he quoted, uh, As if that is an incomprehensible juxtaposition of two of a contradiction of two contrary notions. On the one hand, we say that there is nothing like it. Absolutely nothing like it. But in the very next statement says, he hears and he sees. So we're invited to say back as a retort from the rational plane, but we hear and we see. So if there's nothing like God, how is it possible for us to hear and see while he is the only hearer and seer? So this radical juxtaposition between the transcendence of God and the imminence of God is what precipitated in Bayezid al-Bistami that kind of koan-like opening. That yes, the only way we can grasp this divine reality is through a synthesis of opposites that can only take place through the heart. The mind has to be precipitated into bewilderment, into hayra, and then something of the carapace of mental coagulations around the heart, that mental carapace is cracked. And as Leonard Cohen said famously, it's through the cracks that the light gets in. He expressed a very important Kabbalah truth in that song, I forget which one it was, that it's through the cracks that the light gets in. It's through the crack of the, on the mental plane that opens up the path, or a, a kind of what the what Shuan would call um, a, a unitive realization of the heart as opposed to the dualistic conception of the mind. So this is a, a, a very powerful way of, of saying to us to beware of what our human conception is doing to the infinite riches contained in God.
The name, the supreme name Allah is safeguarded between two affirmations of his unity. When we say Qul Huwa, the He signifies the pure essence in itself, without any differentiation as regards qualities. Then to wipe away the stain of any idea of limitation or insufficiency that the human intelligence might conceive, the name of divinity is added again. In other words, Qul Huwa, Allah. Allah, the supreme name, is affirmed, and with it the name of absolute plenitude, a samat, the eternally sufficient unto himself. Elsewhere, Dr. Lings has talked about the divine name, a samat, as being like, uh, figuratively like a pyramid, that at, this, at the top of the pyramid, the apex, is samat as such, but everything in existence is tending towards Yasmudu, tending towards that summit. So it's the eternally self-subsistent at the pinnacle of this pyramid of existence, and everything in existence is, as it were, tending towards it. And it is the subsistent in, in and of itself. So he's emphasizing here that the absolute plenitude, the infinite riches of Allah, which is the name of God, the affirmation of God at the level of divinity as opposed to the level of just purely the essence, devoid, as it were, of qualities. But then the Samad says that that apparent emptiness, that voidness of qualities is infinitely compensated from within by by infinitude, by a multiplicity, where all of the colors, and it's a very good example that he gives here, saying that all the colors are, as it were, first absorbed into their undifferentiated colorless light. But then on the other side of this barzakh, as it were, you have all of the colors even more distinct from each other, even more splendid in their particularity being comprised within the infinitude flowing from absolute unity. It's a, it's a marvelous example to help us to see that on the one hand there's negation by virtue of transcendence and then affirmation of what is imminent within the absolute that has burnt up all relativity. So the colors are as it were endowed with an absoluteness after having been extinguished in their relative distinctiveness and their particularities. So it's an extraordinary way of saying that, you know, if, if you are giving your very existence up to the absolute, if you are un ready to undergo this negation of your particularity within relativity, don't think that you're going to lose anything essential about your being. Because it would be you will be re-endowed with your particularity on the other side of that barzakh between existence and being into the, the, the paradise of Firdos, which is where the souls of the prophets and the saints and the saved are all present in all their the, the wonderful uniqueness of their personalities, but comprised completely within the light of the oneness of divinity. And that's why Shuan does such a, an important job in uh, 
rectifying a kind of pseudo-Vedantist error that is made when people say, oh, well, when you are when you're extinguished completely, when Shankara says, when your ego has been cut off like an arm and thrown away, and you have this samadhi, and you go into moksha, mukti, all these things, then the particular individual absolutely ceases to exist, and that it's only the one self. Uh, and Shua does a marvelous job saying that if the prophets and the saints continue to exist as individuals, even after the experience of enlightenment, after the extinction, after moksha, they are jivan mukta, muktis. They have, the jivan mukta has achieved liberation in this life, but his personality, his being subsists. And Shuan says this is like a reflection of what happens in paradise. For all the souls who have been saved, even if they have achieved that enlightenment gradually in what's called in Hinduism uh, krama mukti, the gradual liberation upon death which leads you to the highest paradise, or videha mukti, which is the, at the moment of death you achieve complete enlightenment. But uh, this subsistence of the individuality, not as a relativity, and as something that diminishes, um, is, a, is a diminution vis-a-vis infinitude, but rather is an expression of infinitude. This is something that Dr. Links has really helped us to understand. So, that which is named the garden of the essence, in as much as it is the paradise of him, the Jannat Avert, the garden of the essence, is the paradise of the absolute. This, you might say, is beyond being. And so the idea of a garden is perhaps um, what the Sufis say, that we prefer the gardener to the garden. We want him and not his creation. So this is a kind of paradoxical way of referring to the Jannat Advert as a, as, a as a garden. But that same garden is named Ferdos, inasmuch as it is the paradise of God. And here it's important to remember that for the whole perspective of Watata Wujud, uh, which is of course what Kashani was uh, manifesting in this commentary and what Dr. Ling's in leaning upon that commentary is implicitly invoking also. But for the whole Watat al-Wujud perspective of Arabi, it's of absolute importance to distinguish between what Ibn Arabi calls the martaba, the degree or the level of the uluhiyya of divinity, from that ultimate reality of the essence, which in Shuan's terms would be called beyond being. Now, as you know, Watata Wujud, the oneness of being, there's a kind of continuity. But when you look at the way Ibn Arabi distinguishes between the level of the Rabb, of the Ilah, the Martaba, at that level, as opposed to the pure oneness of the essence, Al-Ahad, you realize that what he's talking about is the distinction between being and beyond being. And I don't know if we had this on one of our previous times, but uh, if we have, uh, Khalid, you can stop me. 
But at the end of the Surah Al-Kaf, he interprets in an extraordinary way the, the in, a, in a radical, ungrammatical way that the Ahad, the very last verse of the Surah Al-Kaf, that says uh, that Faman uh, Faman Yarujulika Rabbihi Malyamal Amalam Salihawala Yushrik the Ibadati Rabbihi Ahad. The literal exoteric meaning, the Vahiri meaning, is do not associate anybody with your worship of the Lord. Ibn Arabi says, no, this Ahad here is Al Ahad. So don't think that your worship of your Lord, your Rabb, will get anywhere near the Ahad, because the Ahad doesn't know you. The Ahad has no relationship with you. It is a pure oneness that you cannot worship. It's above and beyond your capacity, your conceptual capacity to worship. And this is one of the meanings of the Hadith that, uh, in which Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said, that you should do tafakkur in relation to the sifat, but not in relation to the that. You can reflect and meditate on the qualities, but not on the essence. The essence knows nothing other than itself. It is nothing other than itself. You can't conceive of it uh, in any way that could be the focus of ibadah. So the rab is related to the marbu, and the essence has no complement it's to it's infinitely and absolutely one within itself so anyway uh in as much as this paradise is named it is the paradise of god it is named Firdos. uh we have this footnote here afterward the beloved um they to whom may be applied the utterance and when i love him i am the hearing wherewith which we had earlier of course so when the, the Habib or the Mahfoub have attained to eternity after extinction, which is the Maqam al-Ilahi, the station of immutability. But lest their plurality should seem to imply plurality in God, they are, when spoken of, as it were, separated from the divinity, being then those who are brought nigh, al-Muqarrabun. They drink at the fountain of Kothar, the, the supreme river, whence flow all others, and of which the Prophet said, There are on its banks as many cups of silver as there are stars in the firmament. Whoso drinketh thereof shall never thirst. In Firdaus, the Nai, the Muqarrabun, also drink from the fountain, which, like Kothar, is perfumed with musk and is named Tasneem. The name Tasneem in its expression of high raising. This is where I'd like to ask Sidi Abdurrahman Ghazar uh, a little explanation about how Tasneem comes to be called, uh, refer, referred to here as exaltation. What's the root of that word? And can you shed light on this? Tanama, <coughs> Tasanama. What is it? You know, I think that the sanam it, it, it's uh, um, the Arab used to call um, to call that on a plant that lives high in ah, mountains. That is right. one thing I know about the the, the, the name sanam. 
type of plant that lives on the high mountains. So, right, yeah. right. I think that's it. So he's yeah. saying that this expression so, uh, is Tassanama would be to ascend to mounts, mm. to scale, to climb. Ah, there you go. Mm. This is from Hans Weir. Oh. All right. So it would resonate with the type of plant that lives on the mountain in that case. Yeah. Right, right. Mm. Tanama is height, summit, or peak. Mm. Uh -huh. Thank you. So it's also a, a name of uh, Mount uh, um, uh, the Camel, Sinama Jimal. It's also uh, the great camels, the high camels. So, yeah. yeah. Right. Well, you know, this is, this is really interesting because not only does the, I, I'm sure that the root of the word mm. goes right back to the kind of plant that goes high and then it becomes an abstraction. Yes, to say, exactly. Ascending. Because mm. so many of the words in Arabic have their roots in something like a plant or something in the phenomenon of virgin nature. And then the philosophical meaning is an extrapolation from that phenomenal. Yes. Uh, description, a phenomenological description of what the thing actually is concretely, and then it becomes abstract. And this is exactly what Dr. Ling says in this marvelous paragraph. To speak of the gardens and fountains of paradise, to speak of its rivers, its fruits, and its consorts, is to speak the truth. Whereas to speak of such blessings in this world is only a matter of speaking. You know, it's metaphorical. It's what the Arabs would say, majazi. When we say this apple is really tasty, we're actually thinking that we're saying something very concrete, but it's majazi, it's not hafifi. The hafifi, the reality is that this taste of the apple in my garden is just a remote shadow of its archetype in paradise. That what is real is that apple in paradise the fruits, the consorts, the rivers, the trees, all of those realities are up there in the, tr in the real world. And down here, we just are following the shadows. It's a beautiful passage. To speak of the gardens and fountains of paradise, as also of its rivers, fruits, and consorts, is to speak the truth. Whereas to speak of such blessings in this world is only a manner of speaking. For the realities are in Ferdos, and what we see in this world are only the remote shadows of reality. Now, this is one of the most fundamental spiritual principles in all of the traditions. The thing is, though, that the Quran has revealed this perspective at the very heart of its revelation. It's the very, you know, the, the, there is more in the Quran by way of description of paradise than in any other scriptures. There are some uh, Mahayana scriptures that uh, may describe different types of paradise in great detail, but they can't be called the, the essential scriptures from you know, the Theravadin tradition the, uh, in the, the Pali canon. Whereas the Quran is the central revelation of Islam. It tells us so much about the paradises with all these keys and these clues to decipher, to understand that. Um, Dr. Lins, I, I give you a, a, a little anecdote on this. 
that um, well, one of the, the prayers that he used to like to recite, one of the passages in the Quran, was a passage that talked about um, and Dr. Lins used to recite this verse quite frequently in the Isha prayer. Give good news to the believers, those who believe and who act virtuously. For them are gardens underneath which rivers flow. Every time they are given to eat from a fruit of the garden, they say, this is what we were given to eat before. And they were given something similar to it. So what Dr. Lings is saying is this similarity, this unitive axis that connects the heavenly archetypes with their earthly symbols that when on earth we have a noble or a beautiful experience this is a foretaste of its heavenly archetype so on the one hand there is a continuity of substance that connects the heavenly archetype with its earthly shadow but on the other hand there is an ontological disparity between the plenitude of the archetype in paradise and its reflection on earth. So when the people in paradise say, this is the very thing that we were given to eat on earth, they're expressing the aspect of continuity between substance and accident, between the essence and the form, between the archetype and it's simple. But then when God says, this shabi means it's not a, an identical thing. It's like it. It's, it's the tashbi. Just like our hearing and our seeing is related to the tashbi. It's a similarity with God, who is the only hearer. But God's hearing and God's seeing is in fact the true hearing and seeing, and ours are just reflections of it. So, as with so many things, Shuan explains this so beautifully, that in terms of the circle and the, the radii leading to the center, in terms of a spider's web, whatever there is in existence is subject to these two poles. On the one hand, continuity, identity of essence, there's only one reality, so the radii that connect all of the points in the spider's web, those radii are the unitive dimensions that relate everything back to the center, the dimensionless center, but then the circumferences, the circles, represent existential separation. So as you go further and further away from the center, you have the concentric circles that manifest the ontological remoteness 
from the center to the periphery. But at no point can there be any radical, absolute discontinuity with the center because at every point, the radius is leading you back to the center. That's the beauty of the spider's web. And Shuan, I think it's in, uh, uh, in the tracks of Buddhism that uh, he talks about this. And I think also there's a footnote where he says this is the doctrine, the metaphysical doctrine that the Prophet taught Abu Bakr in the cave along with the hidden, the khafi, uh, the silent invocation, but also because the, the spider had spun a web at the mouth of the cave and had put off the, uh, the Quraysh that were looking for them. Shuan says that this doctrine of the spider's web and of the invocation, practice of the invocation given by the Prophet to Abu Bakr at this critical point in the prophetic mission. So, where are we now? Um, yes, the divinity immutable and indivisible is the truth, besides which all other truths cease to exist. One such relative truth is that of the religious law, and it is said that this truth may be expressed in the words I and thou, whereas the truth of the path, that is the direct way of return towards God, may be expressed I am thou, and thou art I. But the truth itself is, there is neither I nor thou, but only he. So the Sharia, and again we go back to this uh, the importance of understanding that the tarifa, the path that takes you from the circumference, Dr. Lings, I think in the book, What is Sufism, talks about this, that the shari, being on the Sharia, following the Sharia, which also means path, of course, the pathway to water, the Sharia is like um, holding on to the circumference of the circle and that instead of being lost in space erring going here going there you come onto the path the sharia which is like being on a point on a circumference but then to move from the sharia towards the haqiqa you need a different kind of path you need the tariqa, you need a spiritual path, an interiorizing path, to go from the outer law to its inner reality, to the spirit of the law. And to do that, you need to follow the path. So again, you follow this, this radius that goes towards the center. Um, until at the center, which is the haqiqa, there is no longer ana wa anta or ana anta wa anta ana, it's just balhua. That hua, the absolute, is the center of this circle. Um, it might be a place here uh, to talk a little bit about, um, with your permission, Khalid, uh, I'll go into something a little bit tangential to this, but maybe this is a good place to talk about it. Um, All right. Is that all right? Do we have time? Uh, yes, yes. Yeah. All right. It's this, that the perennialists um, are often accused of diminishing 
the sense of specifically Muslim identity by virtue of the affirmation of the metaphysical transcendent unity of religions. It's often said about the perennialists that they are not really Muslims because they not only believe in the validity of other religions, but they put them all on the same level of Islam as Islam. That uh, this transcendent unity means that all specificity and particularity of being a Christian or a Jew or a Muslim, it's all lost up there in this uh, stratosphere of metaphysical sublimity. So, um, the answer to this is given, or the, the rectification of this error, is given beautifully by Dr. Lings, even if he doesn't directly speak about the criticism. It's in advance, as it were, he displaces, he, he refutes this accusation. By talking about one of the aspects of the image of the concentric circles and the circumference with its center uh, that is unexpected, I think is the word he uses. It's something that the image can't convey in and of itself because the image is static. We have to dynamize this image in order to understand this paradoxical reinforcement of the quintessentially Islamic or Christian or whatever the religion may be, the quintessentially Islamic uh, concentrated dose, that's what he says. As you approach the center from the circumference, you're on your radius, which is your particular esotrism, your tarepa, whether you are a Muslim moving towards it, in this way, or a Buddhist moving towards it this way. These different radii in this image represent the different spiritual paths from which the points on the circumference lead to the center. So the Buddhist, insofar as the Buddhist traverses the esoteric, the inner path, is coming closer and closer, not only to the center where all the religions are at one, it's the unity of the divinity reality itself, but also they're coming closer and closer to all of the other esoterisms, all of the other parts of esoteric realization. The Buddhist, the Hindu, the Muslim, the Christian, as they come closer and closer to the center, they're coming closer and closer to each other. The distance between these spiritual paths diminishes in proportion to the proximity to the center. As you approach the center, however, it's not only a question of you moving towards it on your spiritual path, it's a question of what we might call the hajalli of God, the self-revelation, a theophanic manifestation of the divine names and qualities that is constantly pulsating from the center and recreating, as Ibn Arabi would say, in each instant, with every breath, the religion 
is being recreated. The essence is not something static and historical in the past. It's something dynamic and metaphysical in the present. It's constantly being revealed. The religious, the essence of the religion is constantly being revealed. The veils are being lifted. The tajalli that results in creation is the tajalli that also results in re-revelation. That we're constantly recipients of this pulsating revelation coming from God to us in every moment of our existence. And that pulsation, that radiation from the center that recreates the whole of the cosmos in each instant and re-reveals the revelation, the spirit of the revelation in each instant, it becomes more and more tangible to us as we're traversing this path, as we are doing this invocation, as we're struggling against our faults. The veils are being either penetrated by the, the divine reality or lifted completely. So as you approach the center on this spiritual path, this mystical path, that revelation that's coming from the center all the time is imparting to you a more concentrated dose of the particular essence of your religion. What Shuan calls l'idée fixe, that the, 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 it's not easily translatable, but the eternal idea, the eidos, as, as uh, Plato would say, the archetype of your religion is actually given to you in much greater plenitude, a more concentrated dose, before you have plunged, as it were, into the undifferentiated essence where there is no longer any particular religion. So, paradoxically, you are deconstructing the, all the particularities of your identity as you're coming closer to this moment of extinction in the divine center, in the divine reality, where there's no difference between I and thou, it's only he. And also no difference between any of the religions, they have this transcendent unity in that imminent identity in that centrality of the divine reality and yet you get a more concentrated dose as an individual from your particular faith so you become even more quote muslim as you're coming closer to the center at the same time as seeing through all aspects of identity so that with rumi we could sing what do you make of this, O Muslims? I don't know myself. I am not a Christian or a Jew or a Zoroastrian or a Muslim. It's a kind of incredible deconstruction of any element that can be named as part of his, quote, identity. Because I'm not this, I'm not that, I'm not of the East, I'm not of the West, I'm not of the sea, I'm not of the land, I'm not of Adam or of, or of Eve. I'm not Muslim, I'm not this, I'm not that. Then how does he finish this tremendous poem? By saying, I see one, I hear one, I declare one. 
He alone is the beginning. He is the first and the last, the outward of the And so those two, again, we come back to the, what we started with at the beginning, this paradox that you become more of a, of a Muslim in a quintessential sense, not formal. You don't become a more formalistic Muslim as you approach that center, which is pulsating with the force and the reality of your religion and giving it to you in every second. You become more of a quintessential Muslim. So you have a, a view of the essence, which is why Lin, Dr. Lings was able to write this, these magisterial books as a Muslim about the life of the Prophet, as if he was living those things himself. Because what does he say in his poem, The Self-Portrait? If to see, uh, no more I say would it had been, for I have seen what I have seen, and I have heard what I have heard. So if to tears you see me stirred, presume not that they spring from woe. In thankful wonderment they flow. Praise be to him, the Lord, the King, who gives beyond all reckoning. That vision, you see, that he's allowing us to participate in, he's saying, I wasn't there geographically, historically, when Krishna played the flute with the gopis. I wasn't there when the Blessed Virgin asked her son to change the water into wine. I wasn't there when the Blessed Prophet gave his hand in fealty to and when the Muslims gave their hands and fealty to the Blessed Prophet, and so on. He's, as it were, bewailing that I wasn't there at all these moments when heaven touched earth at Revelation. But then he says, look, I'm not going to say this anymore because I've seen what I have seen, I've heard what I've heard. He has seen with the eye of the heart the quintessence of all of these revelations. He's heard with the ear of his heart the melodies of all of these revelations. So if he's crying now, it's out of thankful wonderment that what, what God has given him, all of the essences of all of the religions, as, however, a Muslim. He doesn't cease to be, but he becomes a quintessential Muslim. And this is probably one of the, the least well-understood aspects of the perennial philosophy. That people fear it and say, well, you know, if we believe in the perennial philosophy, we can't really be good Muslims. We can't do da'wah. We can't invite people to Islam and so on and so forth. I would say to them that if you have to feel that you, if you need to invite people to Islam as the best religion, which is not the only religion, the Quran itself talks repeatedly about the validity of the other faiths. But if you as a Muslim feel you have to do da'wah, then make your da'wah on the basis of this. Make your invitation, your call, to say, look, consider Islam uh, as a possibility for you, because as a Muslim, within the framework of the Quranic revelation, you can affirm and to some extent even taste the beauty, the sanctity, the truth, the inspiration, of all of the other religions. But that is what Islam gives you within its founding revelation, a capacity to open up to those truths, those aspects of the sacred that are quintessential and that can feed into your own spiritual life. 
not detract from it, not make you think that I should become a Buddhist or this or that, but they can actually enrich your particular, uh, your practice of your faith. And here I'll just finish with something that Shuon says about um, the, the dialogue between the Hellenists and the Christians in uh, Light on the Ancient Worlds, where he says that an understanding of the Christ who is before Abraham was, in other words, of the Logos that transcends time as opposed to particular manifestations of the Logos within history. An understanding of that Logos principle of the Christ who is before Abraham was, such an understanding, far from diminishing our participation in the historical treasures of the redemption, on the contrary, bestows upon those historical treasures a compass that touches the very roots of existence. That's what the Hindus would call a mahavakya, a supreme utterance. That says everything that we need to say. Now, I'm sorry I've, I've taken up a lot of our time on something that wasn't directly connected to the Book of Stephanie, but now I think for these last Five, ten minutes, perhaps we can have uh, a question or two from those of you who um, are zooming in. I, I might have a question, if that's all right. Yes, yes go ahead. Uh, it's related to the subject we talked about earlier, but when Dr. Links mentioned shadows of reality and the shadows of paradise. Um, am I right in saying that this is related to or perhaps Dr. Ling's member um, is related to the Alam al-Mithal, or the imaginal world, as yeah. Henry Corbin might have explained it in other books. And if that's the case, in terms of experience that word, is it something perhaps the nafs or the soul can experience it in this worldly life, or something that we would experience in the next cycle or the next life? Or yeah. Yeah, well, since you, since you mentioned Corbin, who was, I think, mm. uh, I, I would uh, argue that Corbin, more than anybody else in the 20th and now 21st century, um, Corbin is the one who really helped us to understand with the eye of the imagination, with the, uh, the difference between the imaginary and the imaginal, and that the Alam al Khayyad. We have access to, which is identical to the Alwan Mithal, that these these similitudes, these uh, archetypal realities, that remember are one degree beneath that of the Ayana Thabita, because this is where spirits take form and the forms acquire spirit, the spiritualization of form and the formalization of spirits. And I think Corbin really helped us in that wonderful book of his called Creative Imagination in the Sufism of Ibn Arabi, and which later I think was re, uh, new edition was called From the Alone to the Alone, or something like that. And remember that Chittik also, in his first great book on Ibn Arabi, his magnum opus, I would argue, um, Ibn Arabi, you know, the, the Sufi path of knowledge, uh, the, the, the subtitle is The Metaphysics of the Imagination. It's all about spiritualizing the imagination and to open up to the Alam al in this world, 
that you open up to it. Of course, in the hereafter, you encounter those paradises whence flow these uh, these mithal. Remember, the Quran itself says that we put every kind of mathal in this Quran, and that the the treasuries of God are in the khazain of Allah, and that we nunazdil we actually cause them to descend these treasuries of that are with us of all things. We cause them to descend as archetypal manifestations onto earth. So in this world, we are surrounded by the coagulated forms of the alam al-mithal. How do we dissolve the coagulated material encrustations and enter into the mathal as such that takes us into the, the realm of the alam al-mithal, the alam al-khiyal? by means of the imagination that uh, Ibn Arabi distinguishes in this way. But there's the khiyal al-muttasil and the khiyal al-munfasil. That imagination, which is muttasil, is tied to, connected to, our naps, our ego, our subjectivity. And we can't escape that. You know, we have dreams that are just uh, what Dr. Ling's used to call psychic jumble. They are just extensions of ourselves. It's the imagination tied to the individual ego. But the khiyal al-munfasid is separated from, is distinct from our own ego, and that's when you enter into what the Prophet called ru'ya sadiqa, a vision of the truth, a true vision. Through the through dreams, which is what we have access to, but call that was someone who, according to Dr. Nasr, Zayd Hussein Nasr said that when he used to go up those beautiful mountains, climb the mountains north of Tehran, the Algors, he would be with Korban and sometimes with Tabatabai and other, other kindred spirits, Herman Landolt, Izutsu, Chitik, you know, these wonderful uh, evocations that NASA gives of those the great days of what was called the School of Tehran, 1970s, before the revolution. He said that being with Korban and climbing up these mountains and seeing the streams and hearing the birds in the trees and having these wonderful experiences, he said, it was as if I was in the company of an angel. That Corban was like an angel. Everything that he saw was related to paradise. It was as if he wasn't fully on this world. For him, this world was paradise. The eye of the heart had opened for Corban. The imagination for him. He couldn't see a stream without seeing Komsar. So he, through, and not through any great spiritual practice, so far as we know, he was a kind of unique. You know, he, he was a, an exception that proved the rule. When he was asked, you know, what is it that you practice, he gave some very vague answer. He's not, he wasn't known to have done much in the way of spiritual practice. No one even really knows what religion he practiced. I think um, Tabatabai asked him once, what is your, how do you pray? And apparently Corban said, I pray using the supplications of your 12th imam. Those are the prayers that I use. So he was a, 
you know, a unique kind of, same with Urutsu, we don't really know how he practiced, although they, uh, I think he was a Buddhist of some sort. But anyway, this capacity to uh, have what Schumann calls the metaphysical transparency of phenomena, to see the angelic heavenly archetypes being manifested in and through all the phenomena of virgin nature. For most of us, it's a question of first intellectually understanding that these phenomena around us cannot exist in the absence of their principial archetypes, their roots in paradise. We have to intellectually understand that first. And then, hopefully, through the vicar of the overwhelming majority of us, through doing what the Prophet said, For everything there is a polish, and the polish of the hearts is the remembrance of God. And what are we doing when we polish our hearts of that, what the Quran calls, That <coughs> what we have done, what we have earned through our act, and not just in this world, but in our previous acts and previous existences, what the Hindu call our bad karma. This is implicitly being referred to by the Quran by talking about the rust on the hearts from what we have burned from our actions. So we as fallen beings in this last phase of the Kali Yuga, close to the end of this cycle, we've We've come into this world with our hearts rusted. It's not an original sin in the Christian sense. It's just our baggage from our previous existence cosmically. And we come with a lot of rust around our, our spiritual consciousness. We do not have access to the, the vision, the Adamic vision of the Fitra anymore. So we have to do something about it. And what do we do? We polish up our hearts. We get rid of that rust through the remembrance of God. So I'll take one. It's, it's yeah. We've we've had an hour. So I think I had an hour already. Yeah. Can we have just one question from somebody who I haven't seen yet? Um. Could I could I ask a question? Yes. Uh, uh, the um. Adib. Adib. Sorry, Adib. Yeah. Good. Come on, save, save the day. Give us a good, meaty question. Um, all right. I actually had two, but um, uh, I'll ask them both because they're quite short. Uh, the first, uh, you were talking about this process of, of moving from the periphery to the center. Um, how, it's on a practical level, uh, how, how do you know that you're actually moving? Because earlier in the text, um, Dr. Ling's just, I don't know if this is book, or I think, you know, I think it's in Mother Sufism or something. Uh, it talks about two people that just because you're practicing a spiritual path, many people are static, um, that they don't, they don't move. So how, how can we actually be aware of the fact that we are, whether or not we're moving, and is it actually possible to move backwards um, without really That's realizing exactly. it? I was just about to say that it's not only a question of, of uh, moving forwards, it's also a question of falling backwards. Right. And in a certain sense, when you fall backwards and you're aware of it, that's probably the most propulsive form of leaping forward again, of, having, of opening yourself up to the grace of God.
that shows you your intrinsic incapacity to move, to do anything, to understand la hawla wa la quwwata illa billah. So there's often the case that for decades you can have the understanding, you can feel that you are moving towards God. You get something called a good conscience. You know that you're full of imperfections, but you also know you're doing your best. Your effort is there and you thank God for this effort and you know that moment by moment you are actually moving forward to this reality that becomes more and more clear to you, more and more irresistible to you. And Dr. Lings used to say this to us to encourage us. He said that um, when you ask yourself if you made any progress in the spiritual life, and you come to the conclusion that you haven't. And you become very dejected. You think, I've been on the path for 20 years. I've made no spiritual progress. Stop and ask yourself, is it conceivable for you at the end of the day to actually say, mm, I'm a bit tired. I think I'll just go to bed and not do my prayers or my word or my dick. And then all of us are thinking, goodness, no, we could never do that. So he said, look. The very fact that it's inconceivable for you not to do your practice means that you are making spiritual progress. Even if you may not feel that you're becoming a better person, even if you feel these faults are continuing, but you are getting a greater sense of the absolute ineluctability of this path, of its total irresistible attraction. Then you know that something wonderful is happening, and then all you're being asked to do is have patience, perseverance, and trust. The three great virtues that Dr. Lins emphasized again and again and again. Have patience, persevere with your practice, and trust in God's goodness and mercy that will deliver you at death, if not in your life. That's all you have to do. Be patient, carry on with your efforts and trust in God's mercy. And if those three things become more and more self-evident to you, more and more irresistible to you, then you can be sure you are moving along that path. Even if you don't feel that your intellect is doing this, or your spirit is doing that, or you have these heroic virtues, that isn't what it's all about. It's all about complete resignation to the will of God, complete trust in the goodness and saving mercy of God, and the rest is a question of patience, which is why Ibn Arabi said the Sufi path is the five daily prayers and the awaiting of death. Thus, that's all there is to it. So, yes. Thank you very uh, much, uh, Dr. Reza. I think we yeah. pass time now. Yeah. I think we should uh, reserve uh, if we have a question for. Uh, for two weeks from now, yeah. Look forward uh, to it. Thank you very much, all of you, for being with us, and look forward to seeing you all again in two weeks' time. Inshallah. Bye -bye. Uh, Bye -bye. Thank you.